0: Welcome in podcast number 10. This is the 10th, that's a big number. Last week, I thought nine was big, 10 is even bigger. This is a big deal. We have officially podcasted for 10 weeks in a row. That's what that means, the number 10 in this case. This week's Nachos House Stories is gonna be a little different because we're gonna go questions here, which really leads to a broader topic of the week. Before I get into the questions, I want to explore this issue with the seeds this week. So I ordered seeds from a grower in the Pacific Northwest and I received said seeds, which is a lot of S's, by the way. The problem was there were so few of the seeds. And when you talk about seed production, almost immediately you have to leave off Two things. We've got to deduct a good percentage for just germination rate. It's number one. We're never going to have 100% of the seeds germinate. Then, number two, there's another percentage. It's going to be thinning those seeds. So, we've got that. So, whatever you start with, even if you're going to be really good, like really efficient, I think you're hopeful that 60% of your seeds make it, which means we're only talking about out of 100 60 so the lower your number goes right this is easy math right kids we only start with 10 seeds we're only going to have six plants potentially come out of it so the fact there were so few seeds concerned me on that level the other part of it that concerned me was the cost for the amount of seeds was also extraordinarily high compared to other growers That sells seeds. Those two things, again, I am tiptoeing on how I want to phrase some of these issues that I'm seeing. Do I believe them to be intentional? I'm going to leave that still up for debate. Do I believe them to be concerning to me and to others? By the way, those have been recent conversations I've had. Yes, and I've said this time and time again with gardening, and this week's story is an example of this. Everyone's got questions about gardening, and it's always been a little bit of an alchemy category where there's not real clear solutions sometimes to people, and it seems as if maybe the answers are more complicated or more mysterious than many times actually turn out to be. And I want to make sure that everybody that gets involved in gardening, horticulture, loves it. And I don't know if you're going to love it when you see a beautiful picture of a flower online, and that's your expectation, and then you go to grow those, and it doesn't turn out to be that beautiful picture. So a big part of what I'm trying to do is just enlighten you to the fact that there are challenges for Challenges for everyone in growing plants. And there's some things with some of these places, I'll be kind, online that I'm seeing that are almost setting you up for failure. And again, is that intentional? Probably not. I'm sure it's well intended, but the horticultural facts of the matter say that's probably not going to work out the way you were hoping it was going to. That's my preface to this week's Not Just Glenn House stories. There were so many questions this week. I'm not sure how long this is going to take me to answer them in my typical, give you a lot of information, probably more than you ever thought there would be on some of these questions way. I'm going to go through them one by one, but the absolute top question category continues to be, and this is no surprise to me, roses. We have had three great guests on already about roses. Paul Zimmerman, Rebecca Reed, and then Michael Marriott. I am also going to make sure, as I get into answering these, that I give you this piece of advice. You've heard me talk in the recent weeks about people With workshops, obviously, and the amount that they're charging. People like Paul, he and I have an interesting uh, relationship because we didn't know each other at all, but Paul started doing gardening YouTube videos, I want to say almost 10 years ago. And I was doing YouTube videos. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks too, uh, about vegetable growing and starting to talk about gardening a little bit around the same, even if not maybe a little bit more. So when I look back at this and I, I see some of these people that are new to the world, it's a little humorous because Paul and I have been putting out content about, in his case, roses, in my case, sort of general gardening talk and then Japanese maples and conifers after that for the better part of 10 years now. And it feels for us like, where were you people 10 years ago when we were doing this as far as the people that are now charging for the content they're producing, so I really want you to always just take a second and judge the source that we're talking about whenever you're involved with plants. Roses have been put in this weird world, and we actually talked uh, a lot with Paul and again with Michael Marriott last uh, the last story episode about how the show flower world is where so much of the vocal information was from. And what's sad about that is if you were in that world of growing flowers or any, any plant roses specifically though, for show, what you wanted to get out of your roses was completely different than the average home gardener wanted. And yet, Those voices from that category, and rightfully so, those people really work hard at trying to grow roses the way they do and try to produce these beautiful blooms that are perfect, but their voices were so loud in the rose world that it became fact. And what they were doing, the outcome was so different. And that has been something that all of us are trying to speak up to more now, that needing to do this or needing to do this complicated task. That was only if you were going to bring a rose to some kind of exhibition hall or a church or something like that. In your home garden, these weren't things you needed to be concerned about. And that's one of the big parts of why I see so many questions about roses still. And online, we've got to remember this. A lot of the early content Online, from let's call it the early 2000s onward, were again those hardcore rose growers, people that wanted more information about how to grow their rose better for a flower show, those kinds of categories. So, still the information leans rose show, not home garden. So, as we get into the questions this week, just keep it in mind overall about roses. We got to judge the person or the place that information is coming from, and is it really speaking to me in my home garden, or is this for a rose flower show? First question of the week. This is about roses. You knew what was happening. I'm scared to work and plant with bare root roses. Do I start in a pot and move it to the ground? Are the plants going to be small the first year? Bare root roses are without question the best way to buy roses, in my opinion. Two huge reasons. Number one, you're going to get a much better priced plant than you would for a container plant. Number two, you get it into the ground at a time of year where they really get in this cycle. The other lesser-known problem that also exists with container roses, and I'm going to completely burst the bubble here, and some people will be mad at me for this, but it's okay. A lot of the plants that you see in the garden center, maybe in the spring, that are in a rose in a container, probably started the early part of that year as a bare root rose. Yeah, three months earlier. It was the same bare root you could have purchased and probably could have purchased it for maybe half the cost as the one we see in the container today in the garden center. That is the truth. When you talk about bare root roses, let's first define what is it. A bare root rose is a plant that has been grown in a field. Then over the course of the winter months, typically it's going to happen sometime after December, depending upon where in the world you are, they're going to dig that rose out of the ground. No soil at all. So just think of the stump, the stems, and the roots. That's all we're talking about. We're not looking at anything else. That's going to be lifted. but Whatever soil there is is going to be washed off. And then they're going to be put into cold storage. The rose is still dormant at this point. And the top canes, all of the big stems that come off of it, have all been cut down. So it's just this very little stumpy... Almost like a three, three to five fingers reaching out of the ground. And that's it. Then they're put in cold storage. The roses dormant. At that point, roses are shipped out bare root. When you receive them, again, this is a little dependent on your part of the country. And I'm going to actually answer part of the question here as far as when do you plant bare root roses. Planting bare root roses is going to depend on your ground. I have another huge shipment of bare root roses coming in March. For me, I don't want to put them in the ground right before we may have like a really cold snap. So we're in January now. I wouldn't want to get the roses, put them in the ground, and then like two weeks later, the temperatures were extremely cold. I don't want that to happen. And we're still a little bit in that cycle for me. But I know by the time we get to March, typically speaking, Our coldest temperatures of the year have passed. We're on a warming trend. So that's what I'm going for. The roses, when the ground can be worked and we're heading towards the warmer part of our year. So for you, that might be mid-late March. You know April doesn't have the coldest temperatures of the year for you. What do I mean by cold? I mean the ground is going to freeze again. That's what we're talking about. The ground has at some point thawed or never frozen. We don't want to then suddenly plant it. And then two weeks later, two inches of the top part of the ground are frozen over and it's five degrees. We don't want that. So if we're past that timeline, that's when we get roses in and that's when we plant. The ground can be worked and we're heading towards warmer parts of the year. What does that do? It puts the rose more on your cycle. So the plant will sit there. It's been, remember, it's gone through a bit of a traumatic experience. It's been ripped out of the ground. Roots have been cut. Stems have been cut. It's got issues at that point of the world. Then we're putting it in the ground, and now it's just waiting. It's waiting to say, okay, is the ground warming up a little bit? Okay, all right. I see this. We've gotten some rainfall maybe. I'm going to start putting my roots out. All right. This seems good. Roots are going out. And Then the ground's going to continue to warm, and then suddenly it's going to break dormancy, and buds are going to open, roots are going to keep going. And now we're in a spring cycle. The nice thing about this is, because we're planting them early, you're getting in that window. We don't have any chance of like a May planting of a container plant, where if we get our container grows, we plant it in May, and then suddenly it gets really hot. It may have only had five or 10 days to actually get into the ground with its roots. That's not a lot of time. So you can see more stress typically that time of year planting. Where if we plant in like a March cycle, we don't have to worry about it as much. So bare root roses, that's our timeline. The ground was frozen or has never frozen and is now headed towards warming trends. We're out of the fear of the the biggest cold of the year. We're past that. That's the best time to get and plant bare root roses. Now there is another I'm going to call this a myth cuz I just don't believe in it at all. That when you get bare root roses, you should put them in containers and hold them over for a year. This makes no sense. This is completely counterintuitive to what you do with plants. All plants will grow better Guess where? In soil, in the ground. That's what will happen. They will always do better in that case. If you hold a rose for a year in a container, all you are doing is that root development that's happening in that container could have been happening in the ground. All plants, this varies, all plants have some kind of root activity when the ground is above 20 degrees or more. It was more than, I think, 20 years ago, they actually did research on this very subject with some very cold, hardy pines. Pinus contorta was actually one of them. And the pine trees showed they're actually doing root development even when the ground temperature was 20 to 25 degrees. So think about that. Our version of cold versus the soil temperature, you want your plant to develop roots as quickly as possible in your soil. And when you put it in a container, that energy is wasted. And then when you do take it, out of the container, put it in the ground, those roots are a little like, oh, I guess we're doing this now? Is this a thing? Yeah, this is a thing suddenly. You don't have to grow in this ground instead of this container media or potting mix or whatever it's been. Always try to get your roses into the ground and all plants into the ground unless you know shortly thereafter planting, you're going to see very cold temperatures. That's never a good idea because now the plant has no root development whatsoever. But if you're heading into the warming trend, that's the time to get the rose in the ground. So hopefully that answered this question about bare root roses in maybe the longest winded way humanly possible. This is another question, yes, about bare root roses. So this was, I put my roses into a temporary spot and now what should I do with it? We pretty much just covered how we handle that element of when you plant. The other question involved in this is, is will the plant be small the first year? I also got a question about trying to describe the difference between own root and bare root. Bare root? so a lot of root involved here, people. Bare root, own root, grafted, budded, et cetera. Let me go through this real quick, and hopefully, this will answer all of those questions in one single answer. Bare root, already described. Plant grown in the ground, dug up out of the ground, and then all the soil is washed off. The top of it is trimmed back. So we end up with this very stumpy, just a few stems coming out of the ground, and no hardly any root mass whatsoever, and no soil. Think of it as a literal definition of bare root. Own root. Is a real, is a rose. A lot of R's and roots. This is a real tongue twister this week, by the way. Can I share that with you? The roses have not been grafted. If you go back to the earlier Natchez Glen House stories, I did a little pocket guide reference for this. A grafted rose is when we have a seedling rose that's been grown. The little seedling grows up, then we cut the top of it off. And we take a new variety of rose or something that we've discovered, and we literally cut into that root that we have now, and we just insert this new little piece of growth that we took from another rose. And we hope for those two to grow together, make a graft union, and now that new variety uses the root system of that seedling rose as energy, and then the two of them become one in this magical thing called grafting. And propagation. That is a grafted or budded rose. An own root rose is where we take a cutting off of a variety, and then we put that through some means of. Now there's there's cultural tissue that is done in the story with Paul Zimmerman. We talk about this process as well, where we just take a cutting and then we get it to create roots from the cutting through a different few different types of methodologies. But then that cutting develops roots, and that is own root. It's not grafted to another species, or in the case of a lot of roses throughout the United States, it's actually uh, Dr. Yui was a rose understock, the roots that we're using to get that new rose attached to, that was the understock. And own root doesn't have any understock or any other root system that it is connected to or grafted to. It is literally creating its own roots from the cutting. That's the difference. They're a little literal, but it's hard. I understand definitely the the complexity of this. And when you go to buy, you see these phrases, right? It's, let me throw this at you, people. Maybe this will be a a nice comparable for you. Have you noticed how many choices there are on products now? You go on Amazon, you go on Google, you search for something, and there's literally 2 billion selections of it. And it seems very confusing on what you want. A little similar with the roses, but not that bad. Those are usually the four big choices with roses are going to be own root, grafted, bare root, or container. All really literal. Container in a pot, bare root. We talked about it. All the soil is gone. Grafted, what we just discussed, own root. That's it. Then there's one more but it's when someone takes a longer trunk of a rose variety and it's called tree form. But pretty similar overall, the whole process. So to get to the question here, when do you move these roses to a permanent spot? It's just like what we just just discussed. When we're in a warming trend, find your spot, your ground is no longer frozen or never froze. We're heading towards that warming period. I like to usually look at in more moderate climates, that's going to be March, and maybe in colder climates, that's going to be April, but you're going to be in that ballpark. I don't like to do a tremendous amount of planting in the ground typically in February because we know February can still be a cold month. But what have we learned in these answers? Number one, there's a lot of R sounds with roots and roses, and it can be a little confusing, but hopefully we made you a little more confident in roses. The next question, this is another tough one. And I think there are a lot of different opinions on what this phrase means. So I think it's going to be important to define that first off. How can I learn more about rose hybridization? Hybridizing roses for me means we're going to, we're going to take a, I'm going to use this as a verb. We're going to take a David Austin approach to this. We believe there is a rose that we think should exist, but it doesn't. Meaning, I want a rose that blooms all year long and is super, super fragrant and has super heavy petal count on a lot of them and reminds me some of the old classic English roses. That was David Austin's view. Now, keep in mind, as we have learned over two stories of Natchez House. Their timeline in rose hybridization can be ever. And to hybridize roses for David Austin as the example, it took him from the age of 21 to 1983 to really see huge public success with Graham Thomas. So rose hybridization starts to me with any plant, really. That. That thought. What doesn't exist? What's an attribute I would like to have? And then it gets down to, can we find a way botanically from a horticultural sense where that's even possible? One of the great things for anybody that's into horticulture that's really boring for most people is trying to make plants more cold-hardy. Meaning, right now, let's say it can live to Between zero to five degrees. But is there a way that we can get it to live down to negative 10 degrees? So then the search is Is there a genus of that same plant out there somewhere, a species of that plant in its family that lives in a part of the world where it does get that cold? And then we say, We're going to take flowers or pollen from that plant and cross it with this other species that isn't so cold hardy. And then we're going to get all of those seedlings that hopefully it makes, and we're going to grow those seedlings and see, are they cold hardy? Now, a word of warning here on any kind of hybridizing on plants. This is a pursuit that is going to take decades in most cases. The biggest recommendation I can give you to learn more About rose hybridization is to get involved in either the American Rose Society, has a lot of people that are involved in it. The other thing, though, I would really highly encourage you to do is resource books that are going to be a little bit more academic leaning towards roses. Because really, what you're going to have to pursue is what attributes do you want? Let's say in your world, what you want is a huge, heavy red rose with very little thorn that blooms all year, has great fragrance. You're going to have to search out either existing varieties that have some of those attributes and then start cross-pollinating. You're going to find a red rose that maybe is not that fragrant, but has very little thorn and is good size, and then find a rose that has a tremendous amount. A fragrance, but maybe is super thorny and doesn't bloom that much. And then you're going to cross those two things. Then you're going to gather all the seeds. No. Now, again, little word of warning here. When you do to go to cross pollinate plants, it's not always guaranteed that you actually get seedlings from that. Sometimes, and this does happen, it's a little easier with roses sometimes, but I'm sure there are rose hybridizers out there that would disagree with this statement. Not all plants. Can cross-pollinate each other, even within the same genus of plants sometimes. This is more debated in like the tree world. I see this a lot with uh, evergreen conifers, that some people argue, can this spruce even cross-pollinate this spruce species? And some people say, oh yes, it has. This is an example of a hybrid seedling between the two. And other people go, no, it's not. And the only way to ever prove that, by the way, is through some kind of genetic testing which very rarely is there enough money in the plant horticultural world to prove these type things. But rose hybridization, there are so many great rose hybridizers out there that you usually can find a community maybe within your state or right now even online where people do work on these kind of things. So if you want to learn more about rose hybridization, my biggest recommendation, get really familiar with different species roses, start learning their attributes. Then you can start researching what cultivated varieties of those species are out there and then just get creative with it. I think it is the kind of pursuit that if you're going to enjoy it and the two stories with uh, Michael Marriott from David Austin and Rebecca Reed are by far the best examples of this. Creativity is a big part of rose hybridization. They're having those creative ideas of I'm going to hybridize This with this, because my outcome, I hope it to be this magical plant. But it does take patience and a tremendous amount of persistence. Next question, what is your favorite mulch and why? Let's define mulch. Mulch for me is some kind of organic material that we put above the natural soil line to help insulate plants, retain moisture, and hopefully block out weed, seedlings, maybe less effectively than the other two things, and also provide enough organic matter to slowly break down and feed our plants. Wow. When you think about mulch that way, it sounds way more complicated. Mulch for me is going to be an organic forestry type product, aka trees, leaves. Do I have a favorite? Yes, wood chips. Why? they're free. Yes. wood chips as a mulch are fantastic to me. And when I say wood chips, what do I mean? I mean a uh, arborist a tree service has been in the area. They have chopped down a tree, they put it through a chipper, and it has completely uh, been broken down to, you know, relatively small pieces. I'm going to use that as mulch. Am I going to use that as a amendment to soil? No, it's literally just going to stay on top of the ground and that is it. That's all it's doing. Really important to make note of this. The dyed mulches that are out there in the world, which are uh, either a red dye sometimes added, a brown dye or a black dye. There's a little bit of misinformation about there that they can actually harm your soil. I haven't really seen any evidence of that. Are they hideous? Yes, they are. Do we want something that is going to break down relatively quickly? Yes, that's the other thing. The uh, the dyes and the additives are going to prevent that. A lot of people are looking for a mulch product that is just going to last forever for aesthetic reasons. There was a period of time where rubber mulch made out of recycled tires was becoming a thing. That's no good. We don't want that. What we want. Is an organic material, wood chips. And that wood can be anything. It can be cypress, it can be cedar, it can be hardwoods. None of that is a concern to me. Linda Chalker Scott, who hopefully will be a guest in the upcoming weeks here, had done some really great work in breaking down the myths of gardening. And one of them is this issue of wood chips. So for me, my favorite type of mulch is always going to be a combination of ideally, I'm going to have an arborist tree service, send me a mix of wood chips and leaves, you know, 25% leaves, 75% wood. I'm going to use those to mulch and they're just going to break down. It's going to take them in my neck of the woods in Tennessee because we have so much combination of uh, sun, heat, and rain. I'm going to see those decompose a little bit quicker and maybe you would in a colder climate, but definitely within 18 months of me putting them down. They are going to start to break down, and then they're going to give up all those nutrients over time to the soil. And what, are we, what do we really have there? Compost. That's what it is. It's just compost that hasn't aged yet. That's it. But that's what compost starts with. It's a combination of nitrogen products, green stuff, and carbon products, brown stuff, wood chips, and leaves. That is by far my favorite for those two reasons. It's free, and it works. The next question here gets a little gardening. What to grow in a semi shaded area near evergreens and large trees? Large trees, here's a botanical fact for you of the day, that when you plant underneath them, the biggest challenge that you have is how much water they can take up. One large tree can take up hundreds of gallons of water out of the soil per day is a huge issue. So when you try to do understory plantings, which is what I call them, it's a real challenge just to keep up with. So whenever I approach any kind of understory planting, the first thing I'm going to do is create a little bit of a raised area. Even if that means just bringing in three or four inches of a compost that's already broken down or go back to the wood chips like I just answered, something. I want to do that for two reasons. Number one, I want to make sure that the tree roots that are there, we're not competing too much with our plants that are going into it. The secondary part of that is, over time, that's going to break down because the trees are bringing in so much nutrient and water, and our plants are going to have to have a little bit of a balance there. Some of this will depend on what existing trees we're talking about. As an example, uh, for evergreens, we'll talk about pine trees. Not too bad to plant underneath. Usually pretty favorable neighbors. Things that aren't so favorable to plant underneath. Black walnuts. Why? Walnut trees produce a toxin that is actually a growth inhibitor to the plants around them. So you go to plant underneath a black walnut tree, and suddenly the plants that you've put there are failing. And you're like, what is going on? My plants are dying. And it's literally the black walnut trying to stop them from growing. Why? The black walnut wants to dominate that whole area, right? So it has a toxin called juglone that is actually in its roots being produced. Also in the uh, seed pods that black walnuts make, the same toxin is there, the same growth inhibitor. So that's a really important thing. What kind of trees are we planting underneath? Uh, Beech trees are notorious for having really aggressive root systems that also pump up huge amounts of water throughout the day. Uh, River birch or another one. Huge roots that run all over the place. They try to really dominate the area that they're in. One of the, the biggest tips I can give you on trying to learn, like, do I have a tree that's like that? There is a term in forestry used is uh, pioneer trees and stands. You've probably all heard that maybe before in the past. It's a stand of pine trees, a stand of walnut trees. Whenever you're talking about a species of plant that does those kinds of things. They're the first to grow in an area and then they create large groves or groups of themselves in an area. These are usually trees that are hard to work around, meaning they really want to dominate the area. Things like dogwoods is an example. Not so bad. Rarely do you ever see dogwoods in groves. They're usually singular trees that just happen to grow very happily amongst all of its partners. To get to the question, what do I like to grow in semi-shady areas? Uh, two favorites for me. I love all varieties of woodland anemone. Now, not the anemones that we typically see with the blue or the purple flowers, but some of the Japanese woodland, uh, anemone robusta, uh, robusta is one of the varieties and species out there. Really beautiful, white flower, big green leaves, really nice in those type settings. Love those. Epimediums are another group of really interesting little plants. Very low, but cool colored foliage almost goes between like coppery greens to greens and yellows. Those are really cool little plants, epimediums. Beautiful flowers almost remind me of some of the tropical orchids that are in the world, but just smaller scale. Love epimediums for those kind of settings as well. Another one that I don't see a lot of people growing But it is really a good woodland-setting plant, too, Is Estrantia. Um, Big spikes of flowers. Really good cut flower, too, actually, by the way. Uh, Long, long vase life and does well in competitive settings. A couple of others that would probably strike you as, really? Foxgloves. Digitalis is the botanical for foxglove. Really good as a woodland-planting kind of variety. The other two categories that I would definitely throw at you, daffodils, great for woodland settings. They come up most of the time before the tree has even set its leaves again. So that's a really good one. Daffodil, I the Narcissus family. And don't think of just the, the typical, maybe boring daffodils that you're used to. There are so many great daffodil varieties out there now. You have a lot of opportunity to get creative and interesting with them. The other one is tulips, of course, because tulips come up before the leaves on the plant are out. The hardest thing that you will ever try to do in a shaded area that we're talking about is trying to get something that's going to flower at the height of summer. The problem is there are so few plants, the woodland anemones are actually really good for this, that bloom and create a flower by the time the tree is completely leafed out. The typical foliage choices that are out there are things like hostas, or heucheras, and coral bells is the common name for them. They're all nice foliage plants, but not a lot of flower. So when it comes to shade, that's the biggest challenge that we normally run into. So usually those type gardens can have great spring production, like even peonies, like really early varieties will do well in like woodland settings. There are actually a couple of uh, fern leaf species of peonies that are really good in those kind of settings. I've seen them just do tremendously for decades in gardens in these shaded areas. But the woodland anemones, those are probably going to be some of your best bet. And one of the additional things I should mention here, there are so many species now that are out in the universe of things like anemone that sometimes we hear a word like that. And we immediately maybe think in their case, the purple, blue, white flowers that we see sometimes as cut flowers, which I have mixed feelings on, by the way. But the anemone group is huge. So the big thing you can do yourself a favor on is when you start searching for these things on Google, put in things like anemone species and then start finding the species of those and then Google those. And then you're going to open up your world a little bit. If you just search like anemone flowers, you're going to keep seeing forever and ever the white, purplish, blue varieties of anemones that we see in the spring. And those are not as good for a shaded area for like late in the year flowering. Those actual varieties of anemone are spring blooming where the woodland types from a lot of the Asian regions of the world are more late summer, early fall blooming. So if you do a combination of like peony species meets other varieties, you'll get some later flowering. There are so many good, and on the Instagram here, you nailed it with the hellebores too, the lenten rose. That's one of the problems with woodland settings is you get so many early blooming things, but then you have nothing, right? The rest of the year, you're like, yeah. Remember spring? It was nice. So those woodlands can really fill into that. The other variety of plants that does well, and this is going to cost you more of a pretty penny, are going to be tree panties. Tree peonies also do well in a lot of dappled light, and they'll bloom even a little bit later, but tree peonies get into a world of very high cost for interesting varieties where very young plants you can be paying upwards of 75 to $100 for. So that is a big difference. To go on to the Instagram and answer a couple of questions I hear there. Uh, why do I have mixed feelings about spring anemones? For me, anemones, is a cut flower, are so short lived. And they also, depending, especially here in my part of the world, they do not like warm weather. So they tend to fade extremely early. And whenever you hear me talk, about a flower, as it's not my favorite. I'm approaching things from a flower production standpoint. Now, gardening, is completely different. Trust me, we, when we were in our two-year excursion into Connecticut, we had a perennial garden. I had all kinds of things that were just like fleeting. They bloomed for like a day and you missed it, but I didn't care. I was like, that was a beautiful flower. I enjoyed that day. So anemones to me fall a little bit more into that category where they're going to bloom, it's going to be a short period of time, then they're pretty much done for the year. Many, fact, many times, actually, recess back into the ground and go dormant during the summer months. So, those are a big part of my challenge now is like, where's that balance between great cut flower, great garden flower, and how do we come to that balance of things? Cannies, same feelings I have on anemones, beautiful flower, short lived. How do we either find varieties that extend from that or? Have a better setting for those. The woodland anemones I really like, and I've actually thought about bringing them here to grow again because we had a lot of them up in Connecticut. The woodland anemones will do well in shade, and they also bloom during that period of time where not a lot else is blooming, and they make really good cut flowers too. And I actually have a shaded area towards the back uh, quadrant of the property here. So I've thought about doing those as well. Another question I saw also from Instagram was about daffodils. And is it too late to plant daffodils? It's never too late to plant daffodils. Can we talk about daffodils for a second? I talked about paper whites, which are a daffodil, Narcissus, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I saw some paper whites at a friend of mine who will remain nameless for this podcast, but her name may be Kim. And she had literally forgotten about some paper whites in a drawer in her store for, I believe, what was months. And guess what the paper whites were doing? Growing happily. Literally had sprouted out, green stem coming up. Daffodils are, if when we're, when we're all gone, people, let's not get morbid on a podcast, but when we're all gone, you know what won't be one of the plants that will continue to move past? The daffodils. They are so durable. The fact that they have evolved to have toxin, to have where predators, for the most part, don't mess with them. Uh, they produce these beautiful flowers. They'll bloom where it seems like anywhere in any setting. Wet soils, the only thing that gives them a little bit of a challenge. And even then, it's got to be really wet, like, you know, boggy wet to make them not happy. They're cold hardy. There's pretty much nothing a daffodil can't take. So, worst case scenario, If you plant a daffodil now, what you may see is that it doesn't bloom very prolifically this year. Maybe you just get some foliage because you didn't have enough chill hours. But the daffodil will come back the next year and you will have blooms. Or if you're like Kim, you can leave it in a drawer and it'll still grow. Last Question of the week. I believe I have to scan my monitor over here for this week's Nachos Glen House stories. This was a another rose question. Did I have a suggestion as a starter rose? For me, I'm going to look at a starter rose like this. I want a variety that is going to stay smaller. That's one of the first things for me, I want to make sure. The rose isn't going to get huge. One of the misconceptions about roses that I think people have is that they are not huge plants. Many of the species parentage on roses are enormous, big plants, 10 foot tall, 15 foot wide. Roses are really good taking over areas. That's one of the things the thorns help them do, right? Climb up other plants. The thorns are sort of like grappling hooks that go up walls, up other plants, up trees, whatever it might be. So that's one of the first things for me. A starter rose is going to be daintier and not quite so aggressive. Number two, I want it to be magical. Yes, those two things. Magical and not too big. That's all. Those are my only two requirements. Flower color, meh, not that, ex- not that concerned about. In fact, I would actually want one that maybe I see some things that are a little bit unique from it that get me into the rose mind. I'm getting ready to announce here in a couple of weeks. I'm doing a really exciting event for this year where I'll be traveling some and getting a chance to uh, talk about roses in front of some large groups around the country. And for me, that's something I really want to get across. We're doing our, our masterclass here on uh, May 18th and 19th coming up. I want people to start looking at plants with a different eye and thinking about them more so in a, what am I looking for? Is that right? Is that wrong? Getting instincts for plants, not just, oh, we need to do this and plant this, this and plant that. No, we don't want you want to be technical, but in like a real fundamental way. Just go, huh, yeah, I think that is like that. Or is that the way it's supposed to look this time of year? So I want a rose that's going to give us a good experience with that. So it's not going to be something like a knockout rose, right? No. who oh, wants that's just so mean. You know, no offense to the fine people at Star Roses who own the patent for all the knockouts, but it, it's just, it. I think Michael Marriott said it best in last week's Natchez House stories. As a rose, it's not so great. As a landscape shrub, it's fantastic. So do we want a magical plant or do we want a landscape shrub like we see at a parking lot? No! We're not making a parking lot. We're making a garden. So we want a rose that does those type of things for us. Gives us this insight to roses in a different way than we saw them before. Gives us those magical moments. For this year, the raining. Queen of roses for me for all things was the Lady Gardener. The Lady Gardener was I, I the word spectacular is the only word I can say in every way. I had heard from a couple of people, and then I'm gonna I'll make this point as well, that when they had tried the Lady Gardener and their part of the world, its rose bloom didn't open. All the way. So it starts to open and then it sort of fades or gets stopped or blows out. I did not see that at all in any of the plants. And this is a really important thing for anybody who gets into gardening. When you buy one of a plant, you're really not seeing it. You're having an experience with one particular plant that may or may not have done well just for you. And it may have been nothing you did wrong. It could have simply just been that plant you got was going to die or not perform well. When I grow things, I'm always buying them in multiples. Even when I'm gardening, even here before we were open to the public and and doing uh, a commercial element to what we do here at Natchez Glen, I was always buying in, in large quantities. And for me, I always wanted to buy three of something. If I can't buy 3 of a plant, I don't buy it. Now, am I trying to get you to spend more money on plants? Yeah, I am. I yes, yes I am. I'm telling you to buy 3 of something and not 1 of something. The first reason being, you can create a much cooler looking garden with clusters of plants than you can a singular plant. The second part of it is is back to this lady gardener situation. Maybe my friend who grew the lady gardener, it was just the one plant she had didn't do that well. When you grow 3 you get a real safe viewpoint. If I bring in this year, I have nothing fewer than 10 of anything coming in. If I have a row of 10 roses and all 10 of that variety do poorly, it's a pretty safe bet. It's not a great rose for me and this climate and this soil that I have. I can make that assessment. If I only grow one of something, I can't say that. It was just one. could have been the one bad apple in the whole bunch. You know what I'm saying, kids? Could have been the one that spoiled the barrel. Those are things you have to look at. The Lady Gardener brought in five of it last year. All five of them, spectacular blooming, very tight, compact form on it compared to many of the other David Austin Rose varieties. And it bloomed as heavily as any of them all the way from May, all the way to a frost event and just did not stop. You, you would come out and look at that plant and go, what happened? I just got all of your stems the other day and I see new buds all over the place. So the lady gardener is right now my number one recommendation for a starter rose for you. And if the end of the year, David Austin has sold out of every the lady gardener, I'm taking a huge responsibility in it. Can we also have that conversation? Really f- fragrant Beautiful variety, white apricot y tone towards the center. That was another thing. It I had seen some people say that it was more of a white color for them. They didn't see the apricot color. I didn't notice that at all. Beautiful coloration in it. Coloration changed a little bit through the year. Warmer months, the apricot color was a little softer, but definitely there. And then cooler months, very strong apricot color, just a beautiful rose top to bottom. So my recommendation for a starter rose, a lady garden. That is going to wrap up Natchez Glenhouse story number 10, the question and answer edition. I'm going to share this with you as a personal tidbit here. So my daughter, who is uh, 13 years old and in the seventh grade, we have recently discovered she has a teacher who has his own YouTube channel about sneakers. And he has this very funny intro to it where it's this like electronic dance music, EDM, bump, 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 bum, 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 with like graphics and stuff, and it's crazy. And it's like this super high energy thing. And then he comes on camera, he's like, Hey, everybody, we're here to talk about sneak. Whoa. And it's just, it's a real down. It's a real down that intro. It gets you up there like super spectacular talk and no, nothing. So whenever I do the intros and outros on any segments of the podcast now, I'm going to have this in my brain of watching this teacher, which I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about a teacher with a sneaker channel at this point. I'll give you more opinions as the, the story develops. This week's stories. What I want you to walk away with whenever I try to answer questions in this incredibly long-winded, hopefully helpful way that I do, is there's always going to be variables to plants. And what we have to make sure is, and don't do this to yourself, which I think is the biggest thing that I see some people do. Don't overthink it, paralysis by analysis. And don't think in absolutes. For almost everything in gardening I've seen, I've heard of some things happening that I was like, what? Here's a- another story for you. So there is a Korean fur named Silverlock. It's this beautiful Korean fur. It has green needles that actually curve up on the ends so you see the white of the underside of the needle. So it has this silvery white appearance. And it's really one of the more, in the conifer, evergreen collector world, is maybe one of the most popular, iconic kind of plant varieties that are out there. But historically speaking, it's a group of plants that are not supposed to do very well in the southern United States in warmer climates. And about six, seven years ago, I had planted some, and I was randomly at a uh, a gardening club meeting they had asked me to speak at and it was over in east tennessee towards knoxville and i'm talking about something totally non-related to evergreen conifers and somehow through some you know winding path of conversation evergreen conifers came up and the name silberlock came up and i was like oh really and this one older lady she said to me oh i have one of those And I was, I will say, a little skeptical. I go, Are you sure? Maybe it's not just like a Norway spruce. Oh, no, 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 no. She was assured of it. I said, How long have you had it? And she's like, Oh, 20, 25 years. And then that struck me. I was like, Whoa, that must have come over into this country like pretty early on. It came out of Germany, originally the plant. And I was like, well, how big is it? She's like, oh, probably 15, 18 foot tall. I go, is it doing well? She goes, oh, it looks beautiful. Everyone that comes to my house. So of course I had to go see the plant. And I asked her and I went and I was floored. Now, why did this plant work for her? Well, because for her, she happened to be in, much like I am here at Natchez Glen, this really rich, loamy soil pocket. she had gotten the plant when it was very, very, very young. She was a good gardener. She even remembered the year she planted it. And I asked her what the weather was like that year, and she remembered. She said it was very mild. We didn't have a lot of heat. It was a very nice year. So the plant had a real easy early life, had really good soil, and the thing thrived. And the point of that story is that's sort of how plants work. There aren't a lot of absolutes, there are fundamentals. And for you, as someone that tries to grow things, so you got to keep your eye on Don't get too dogmatic in the way you look at anything. Because remember, most of gardening and growing is observation and a lot of magic.
1: The frustration wears and tears inside my brain. When the negative surrounds, it's hard to stay away. Tell me where I'm supposed to go when there's clearly no escape. Yeah, I've got faith, but it's been shaken a few times. I hate to admit it, but acceptance is divine. I've never been one to never speak my mind These are all the things I need to say Before I run out of breath Before I use what's left of me A seed of thought that grows inside my brain These are all the things These are all the things I need to say There's a growing list of apologies to make. Some for the wrong I've done Some for my conscience sake Some from the heart they broke Some for the hearts I've break There is forgiveness that a chosen few receive It ain't my job to judge just call it like I see Alone in my search for clarity But these are all the things I need to say Before I run out of breath Before I use what's left of me A seed of thought that grows inside my brain That your shoulders shouldn't bear Your life is all for living And dying has to wait Don't hold back on saying all the things You might have loved away These are all the things I need to say Before I run out of breath Before I use what's left of me See the thought that grows inside my brain These are all the things These are all the things I need to These are all the things I need to say Before I run out of breath Before I use what's left of me of grows roses my brain. These are all the things, these are all the things I need to say. All the things I need to say. Yeah, all the things I need to say. Yeah,